You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. <laughs> This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know and understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? This week, we're going to be covering On the Way, a sketch by Nadezhda Kvotinskaya. And that is a name which we promise you. It's one of those ones where it looks weird until you look at it in Cyrillic, and then you think, well, that makes so much more sense. Why did we transliterate it this way? Um, yep. And then somewhere out there, transliterator with cackles, knowing they once again got got someone. They got me. They got me good. They got you Most good. Most times that I've tried saying this. Right. Yeah. So, right. Matt, some people may be wondering, who is Nadezhda Kvotinskaya? That's probably not a name most people have heard. No, it's actually, believe it or not, it, she's actually pretty well known in Russia, I would say. I, I pulled some of my Russian friends for this, and they said, heard of her, have not read her. Sure. And that was the general gist that I had gotten. <laughs> sure. And so <laughs> it is a very interesting case. She was at one point the third highest paid writer behind Tolstoy and Turgenev. In the 1870s, she was paid about 300 rubles for each printer sheet, whereas writers like Dostoevsky were paid only 250 rubles per sheet at this time. So she was paid a lot. And it's not just because people thought, wow, she's a really good writer, we should pay her a lot of money. The pay is pretty much determined by how much uh, they were able to sell her work. So it was not only well-respected, but it was actually well-read by her contemporaries. And we'll get into why she kind of falls off a little bit later. It's kind of an interesting theorization of that. But we kind of, as the Slavic Lit Pod now, are trying to... I would say, reconceptualize the 19th century a little bit. Try to make it a little bit more complete in our thinking. Mm-hmm. And the fact that most people are not aware of this name, you know, myself included, until we really started doing research on this, is not good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you have somebody who was so prolific in her own time that is no longer remembered for uh, really no reason uh, is not something that we should be proud of. And we must venture forward and... Uh, you know, recapture what was lost here, because this was a really great story, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and speaking of recapturing what was lost, let's talk about looking back at childhood. Um, it was, that was a good transition, wasn't it? <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no, that was a great setup. That was a great setup. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about the story very briefly, um, then let's talk about uh, Sky herself a little bit. So this this is a short story. It's fairly simple. I think most of you have probably read a, a similar story type to this. It's about someone who has some business to take care of in their old hometown. It's been many years since they've been back there, so they return and they're overwhelmed with these memories of childhood, of the more carefree days when they had feud, no responsibilities other than to, you know, have have fun really. I mean this person, the unnamed narrator, has a pretty pretty happy childhood. And as as he's spending more time there, he begins to think back on his closest childhood friend, this um, young woman or young girl at the time, Nadenka. What you really need to know about Nadenka is that she's someone who's got like a very, um, this whole story really is sketching out her kind of inner life and the way she sees the world very much larger than life. Um, I think the 
the short story describes her as seeing everything as having its own like internal sense of life, every object, every item, uh, having great fantasies, reading a lot, being able to capture all um, the lessons that this slightly older narrator than her, he's, I think, a year or two older than her. Um, like she kind of teaches her and she catches on to everything really fast. And she seems to have this sort of ethereal quality, which even to today, um, she as he thinks back on her, he's kind of, Nadenka, after after the childhood, he kind of became more less interesting, less of a reader, less to her interest. So they kind of at some point in their childhood split up to no longer hang out. And so for for him, the Sunday narrator Nadenka is representative of not only herself as a child, but also like some kind of person who is still hanging on to that sense of childishness that he has lost and and you know bemoans losing. Um, and he, he doesn't actually know what's happened to her, but he fantasizes about who this adult might be. As he carries on his business in the town, he reconnects with some people. Um, he begins to see, move from his lighthearted reflections of remembering childhood to remembering why a little bit. This, he's become more jaded over time, remembering not only the nice things about the town, but even many of the quite ugly things about the people in the town, which is a market movement from the early, um, early tone of the, of the text. And while doing business, he actually, he inquires after Nadenka and happens to find out that a few years back, she ended up being married to an older landowner, having a child, and then eventually dying. So, to which, to, at, at this point, the narrator uh, kind of reflects and, and as we'll talk about things, oh, I guess it's, perhaps it was a good thing that, that she died, that she passed, that she was no longer, that she is no longer in this world um, and before leaving town, after finishing up his business, an old woman approaches him and asks him for some help getting this young boy into a, um, let's see, is it, is it into a school? Yeah, asking for money, some help in getting him into St. Petersburg. Yes, yeah, exactly. And he's like, why is this old woman bothering me? And after a while, he realizes, oh, this is, uh, this is Nadenka's, you know, this is her, her mother. And this child, this is Nadenka's this is Nadenka's child, and he looks in his eyes, trying to find some uh, sense of the friend he had, and seeing nothing, feels this strange sort of way, and turns away and, and leaves without helping them. And that's where this story concludes. Really happy one. Very happy one. <laughs> I I love this story, though. <laughs> no, it's great. I I, uh, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, as we were talking about before the podcast, it draws to mind so many... It's a, it's a very familiar type of story but told very interestingly and uh, I, i'm ready to get into that but before we do matt maybe it would behoove us to learn a little bit more about Foshinskaya. it might behoove it just might i do have a good bit prepped on her she's pretty interesting and this story in particular i think lends itself to a discussion on the sort of biographical reading of literature which she really resists and in a lot of ways uh artistically alters uh in in this story so i, I kind of wanted to go through sort of what her what her story was and some of the interesting parts of the bits of biography that i was able to access because there is not a ton written about her i was able to locate a couple sources in english that uh do some detailed work on her writing but the problem is that her writing is not accessible in english with the exception of a few short stories one translated novel, and maybe bits of poetry? But even in Russian, her own poetry still is not uh, definitively published. There's no definitive collected works 
of poetry. Of prose, I believe there is. Of poetry, some of it is still locked in her journals, in archives, just waiting for somebody to <laughs> find and publish and, and trace. So if that sounds interesting to you, there's your, there's your dissertation topic. <laughs> <laughs> so Hushinskaya, she was born in central Russia in 1824, and she was kind of in this, uh, spent a lot of time in the provinces. She spent almost her entire life in this area, with the exception of about a decade at the end of her life, uh, where she lived, I believe, in St. Petersburg. And she comes from a family of generally well-educated people, well-to-do. They're not, you know, super old, aristocratic, manorial nobility, but they're all, they're doing okay, basically. Their household has been compared to the Russian Brontes because her and her sisters, her two sisters, lived in isolation, and they were all writing, and they were all sharing their works amongst each other, and that was the sort of kind of genesis of their all of their writing careers, all of whom were relatively successful. Nadezhda was... I believe, ultimately the most successful, though this relationship with her sisters will it'll become interesting as we continue here. Uh, uh, her father was good to them by all accounts, right? They were educated at home. She knew multiple languages. She taught herself Latin and Italian. By all accounts that I could find throughout her childhood, she was treated as an equal by her father in her home which is not something that is uh, super common. Uh, and so it was a generally nurturing environment, which is not something that you typically associate with 1800s uh, Russian provincial homes, I would say. So the problem was, as the story goes, even though she came from well-educated parents who were supportive and doing whatever it was they were doing, her father in 1831, just when she was very young, was accused falsely of embezzling money from the state. And he was, as a result, forced to sell all of the family's property. They had basically nothing left. He was forced to go uh, lay bricks, basically, for money for about 14 years until 1845, where he was able to prove his innocence. But that left kind of a deep and scarring sort of impression on Nadezhda and the whole family, as you might as you might very well imagine when yeah. something like that happens. Yeah, when there's like a little 14 years when <laughs> you're under a lot of suspicion, that uh, does tend to cause some uh, some difficulty through the teenage years. Yeah, I didn't look at the exact dates, but it basically would would have been by the time she was like, you know, 10 to early 20s. So these were times where, you know, even though she had a good formative set of years, it would have been helpful to, you know, have a little cash on hand, I guess. Right. Yeah. She actually ended up being the breadwinner of her family, which was extremely, extremely uncommon. First of all, for women at this time. Second of all, for women who were writing, because there was very few of them. This is a generation where they're starting to crop up, and there is there are more of them, but it is super uncommon uh, to be making a living writing uh, as a woman. It's also uncommon at this time, really, to be making a living writing in general, but that's a separate kind of conversation that's interesting, and we can have that later. She lived a generally, by all accounts, solitary life. Her sister, Sophia, who was her closest friend, died in 1865, and in a kind of sad attempt to stay close to her, she ended up marrying her sister's doctor. Uh, they lived together for about two years pretty unsuccessfully. He moved abroad uh, two years after they got married, 
and then he died uh, a couple years later in the early 1870s. After her mother died in 1884, she moved to St. Petersburg, where she died in 1889, which is kind of amazing that her mother almost lived as long as her, which that's a really long life for the 1800s. Yeah. Um, and this story, like many of her other prose stories, was published under the pseudonym V. Krestovsky, which was how she published her prose. Her poetry she wrote under her own name, but her prose, for the most part, she wrote under a pseudonym which is an interesting story that I will come back to later. I found a lot of interesting stories about her. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, like I said, her sister was her closest friend, her sister Sophia, her middle sister, her younger sister. Eh, who needs her, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she died in 1865, which there are varying accounts to the degree of depression that Nadezhda suffered throughout her life, but... At this point in 1865, this is considered her deepest bout of depression, bordering on suicidal, so it was extremely, extremely difficult for her. Now, the thing that is interesting about Nadezhda in the sort of contemporary situation of her writing was the attitude of other writers towards her. And there are contemporary accounts and then there are also biographical accounts that are i believe after she died but you know kind of within that range of people who would have known her or who would have been very familiar with her writing and her femininity was always a target and her appearance specifically formed one of the basis uh of critique of of any critique that anybody leveled at her and this underlying basis was just this kind of inability to picture a woman writing that somehow her artistic achievements were always secondary to her physical attributes, and that being a good artist could not be something that a woman did. And this was just very, of course, untrue, but it formed the, the sort of basis for how she was perceived for a long time. And this is interesting that I think her femininity and her, her womanhood, you could say, was critiqued uh, on, on these grounds, and there was something that seemed to be missed by a lot of people writing biographies and because she lived quite a private life we can't 100 percent say this but it's a little bit of a historical wink wink i think the last 10 years of her life when she was living in saint petersburg she was living with another woman uh, who she as the historians say were was very good friends with wink wink they don't say wink wink i do um <laughs> no i think they write and, into the history books yeah i, I wrote it into the history right. books <laughs> Usually as a footnote, not to get in the way, but... <laughs> yeah, throughout her life, there were a, n a number of very intense relationships with other women that frequently spurred her to write. And sex aside, her creativity is generally linked to these relationships. When her sister Sophia went away to study, she had another, you know, friend locally who they would write with. And when this friend was sick, Nadezhda stopped writing. Like, this was a very intensely sort of communal activity for them uh, and for her throughout her whole life. So this is kind of an interesting way that we can sort of conceptualize uh, what we're about to talk about with On The Way, a sketch, where the basically formative aspect is the memory of a young girl who was the narrator's friend. And that is basically what causes, I mean, that, that memory is the action that causes the writing. And that is 
qu quite interesting. And I don't know. It was pretty good. I found out I found out a lot. I had a lot of research done for this. Yeah, you did. You did. I did. Um, so speaking of, let's talk about On the Way itself. Uh, is there anything, is there anywhere you in particular would like to start? Ah, yes. I did want to start with a brief aside discussion, which I think right. is interesting. Perfect. Let's do it. So this was published in 1854 originally. Mm. There is a collected set of her prose uh, that was uh, completed, I believe, in 1892. I think it is six volumes, six really thick volumes at least. So that is just to say she was writing like a lot, a lot during her life. And so this particular sketch is a really, it's an early piece of writing. And I would consider it sort of a transitional piece of writing from poetry to prose. At this time, there were, uh, this was just a very common transition that writers were making. Uh, poetry just didn't really, didn't really pay the big bucks. And so people were publishing in these so-called thick journals that were publishing prose. And that's what was paying money. And people who were not super, super rich were trying to publish prose because that's what made money. And specifically in the 1850s under Nicholas I, there was a really intense period of censorship where women writers were able to kind of come to the fore and more easily publish because they basically weren't really considered part of the social realm like their male counterparts. And so basically no one really cared that much what they were publishing, which is kind of amazing to be honest, but it allowed Foshinskaya and a number of other women to kind of, you know, start publishing basically. And so this is uh, an interesting period in the 1850s that we're talking about. It's it's one that's kind of, I think, often overlooked as we start to move towards the, the 1860s and you get the, you know, the radicals and you have a more politically charged period, I guess. But this is still interesting nonetheless, especially from a literary perspective. So that's where I wanted to start. Yeah, yeah, it is. So on, on the, on the t topic itself, okay, let's start with... I think one of the more obvious places to start is talking about Nadenka herself, or I might submit, you know, Nadenka it as Nadenka, not only as Nadenka the person, but also Nadenka as, you know, a, a reflection of oneself, of one's own childhood. Um, mm. How do you walk away from this relationship? And there's a lot to say about it. There is a lot to say about it. I think my main point is kind of to reiterate that Nadenka is the the main impetus for writing this story mm -hmm. and it's just very it's very interesting and so ephemeral in a lot of ways the way that she's described like you pointed out which is just she's writing from well i shouldn't say she i guess this is the this is the great issue of this work is being published under the pseudonym krestovsky the narrator it is written from the male perspective but Right, there's clearly a lot of um, biographical details that are that are kind of swung in and combined, and it's very tricky to separate out what is what, which is fascinating to me. But this is clearly the sort of impetus, the reason for writing, and just the way that someone can be preserved in your mind, the image of somebody that you know is no longer there, that is slowly being chipped away by time, as she describes it, is just so beautiful. It was just a really beautiful piece of writing. More than chipping away, it's also building up in like an idea of Nadenka. There's this whole extended section where 
the narrator begins to wonder, you know, who is she today? And we go through all these things of, oh, maybe she's got, you know, this great social life. Maybe she's hosting these salons and all these people come by, mostly I think women that uh, narrator mentions come by and they have all these conversations and, you know, she's, she's married and she does all these, like these creative activities in the home. And she is, you know, maintains this into well into adulthood, this idea of basically being more or less the same as she was a child, like very deep, taking things for not setting into routine. That's something that this, this story otherwise focuses quite a bit on, on the, the place of routine in older life, especially when uh, you just have to get stuff done. I, there's, a, there's a section towards the end which I quite thought, which I thought was really interesting about talking about how people will praise solitude and uniformity and quiet life, you know, saying those are the best things that allow your, your feelings and your ability to, to, to develop. But really, you rarely encounter that. You really cannot find that. In most lives you live, will mean that you cannot actually do things like read means you cannot do things like develop your abilities in peace. Um, but for the narrator, he seems to almost see Nadenka as, oh, she could be an exception to this. Maybe she's living that life, which allows me to, you know, I, I, when the narrator is still reflecting on the happy, carefree child, like this is, this is a Nadenka beyond being a person. She becomes a fantasy. She becomes almost like a, you know, like a, a, a totem of power of like, this is, um, I can't, he can't imagine this fantastical life for himself, this is, that's, that's a power of childhood, but he can still imagine a fantastical life for her, a, a relatively realistic, fa you know, fantasy one, but, you know, one that his, you know, adult mind allows to still be somewhat fantastical. There's also this interesting aspect to me when I was reading it. I don't know if it's because I knew the author was a woman, but there was something about the prose itself that the, the way it was constructed that seemed feminine to me. And I was thinking about this more and i don't really think it's the, the the writing itself what it is is that only women are described in this mm. there is a passing mention at a regiment that's stationed in the town that the narrator remembers seeing none of none of the troops or anybody are, are mentioned and then there is nidanka's son who's mentioned just briefly but the overwhelming majority of things that are described are just the sort of kind of pleasant day-to-day -day things that the women in the town are doing. Right. And maybe that is would be the case. Maybe that's what you would notice if you were just somebody being raised in a provincial town. Not exactly sure. But I just think it is interesting. Yeah, yeah. That but it, like that I <laughs> kept forgetting that it was written from a male perspective. Although it's only mentioned like once or twice, I think yeah, once or twice. Um, there's reference to being a young when it, you know the narrator is a younger boy or a young mm -hmm. boy. Uh, that's the only one that actually pops to mind for me. I mean, other than you know, as you, as you pointed out in Russian, it's written at the male past tense form. Yes, that is true. It just it, it, I think it's even like more interesting in in english because you don't because you don't see that right it's something that's definitely lost in translation that is that is true i forgot that i did check and that is the case however <laughs> in english it does maintain the sort a certain ambiguity i thought mm -hmm. yeah yeah well, i mean really the only person who gets uh much of a sense of interiority is nadenka herself everyone else uh, i mean really it's the narrator it's the the woman who tells the narrator about nadenka's fate and kind of you know her mother who really have any sense of like really being a character beyond being a passing uh, and, and I mean, 
literally being a sketch of a person. Only Nadenka gets like that really that real interiority, which I mean, in some ways, a lot of what the narrator talks about is how much you kind of lose that interiority as you get into the routine of life as you get older. Uh, so, <laughs> see, I think it's interesting, and this is why I feel like it's this sort of I don't know maintains this almost like postmodern element in just the vaguest sense of the word. Is that I don't really think anybody gets interiority. Everybody is through Nadesh's own perception of them and the way that she remembers them. And the way that time has altered that perception that she notes, um, now being able to understand why Nadinka may have acted the way that she did at a certain period of time, it's only through her own reflection that she's able to give any sort of interiority to the other characters. And that is what is so fascinating about this, like the structure of this whole thing. That's true. I mean, I guess really kind of the whole thing is a fantasy of sorts. Like every, every aspect from the narrator's point of view, it's, um, you know, looking at Nadenka as a child as from the outside, looking at Nadenka as a fantasy when she becomes older, not really caring about anyone else in the story so much other than saying, you know, I wasn't too interested in them. Um, <laughs> and the narrator, you know, also even the people in the town, they aren't, I mean, toward the very beginning, you are like presented a literal, like, what am I seeing on the way in? But also like the entire tone of the town changes as the narrator is going through his reflections when it starts off he comes back into town thinking of you know the happiest parts of childhood and the whole town seems kind of fantastical and wow isn't it so good to be back and then after you go through the first round of recollecting nadenka suddenly the narrator now thinking about growing up then turns to oh i forgot these other things about the town and this whole town takes on this darker character and, and then it kind of resolves at the end of the story of more of a like an even like i forgot that uh, now I remember that the people are a little lackluster, but also they're no better, but they're also no worse than people in other towns. This is just how people are everywhere, and it kind of mellows out. So, like, even the town itself doesn't really get a straightforward description. It's entirely filtered through the narrator's emotions at that moment towards, you know, the world around them. It's a very constructed, constructed world. Yeah, I thought it was a good kind of look at provincial life. I guess, or the memory of provincial life, because it goes from this sort of idealized version of what it means to live amongst all of this nature and with all of these people. And then it, it, it sort of hardens throughout the story by the end of the story, for sure. And it, it hardens, I think, at, at the very end with Nadenka's son turning away as if frightened, mistrustfully, the narrator says. And it's sort of a... Yeah, I feel like it's sort of this this town, this way of life re rejecting her as or or him, the narrator at least, right. as seeing the narrator as no longer part of this. I mean, there's probably many interpretations, but that's one. Yeah. And I want to come back to that. I want to talk about more about Dedenka's death, but before we do that, let's take a quick Quick break for everyone who's been here for a little bit, so now's a good time to go get a glass of water, um, and we'll be back in just a second. This episode is brought to you by us. You can support independent podcasting like ours by heading to our website, slopiclippod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all of these secondary sources mentioned. If you want to support the show but don't want to spend any of your hard-earned doubloons, you can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com, or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Questions, comments, concerns, or maybe you just want to appear on our Office Hours podcast, drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944. Or you can also email us a voice recording or 
uh, just a general text question at slaviclitpod.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. Mm-hmm. One more time, that's 209-800-3944. You buy now, you, for just two installments of 1999, you can actually get the bonus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, let's get back to the podcast. Let's talk about Adenka's death a little more, um, if that works for you. It, it works great for me. Okay, perfect. Because I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about what this means. Because So the exact phrasing is... Um, let me grab the exact page. I have, I have the exact line of when he learns her death, but I don't have the context. Oh, yeah. So is, the exact context is as this narrator learns, especially in the context of learning that she had had a child, um, he begins to feel this weird sense of pain and thinks about her and her relationship to that child thinking like, oh, you know, he must, he couldn't have been an amusement for you. You couldn't have just been dressing him up. You saw in him a soul, you know, like you saw many other deeper things. She, we, seeing deeper things in, you know, books and rocks and in the world around them, of course, that might be, or would necessarily be much more amplified for probably, uh, you know, a child. So he, this narrator says, you expected this creature alone in the whole world would love you as you wanted to be loved. How good it is that you died. I'm still trying to understand um, this this kind of positive reaction because I mean when I read it initially, I I was thinking it's kind of it, it feels like this memory of Nadenka. It would have been for the narrator like the fact the fantasy comes from the fact that she could have been living this this fantasy life, could have been living what sure. the narrator imagined, and now the fact that she dies means this narrator doesn't have to fo- face the fact that Nadenka grew up to have. A life much like his own in a way not broad stroke speaking to have like an an, an adult life as people might expect you to have um mm-hmm. i don't know I don't, I don't entirely know how to read this positive reaction i don't i don't know if it's um like one 100 positive mm. but i do think you're right that the the forward projection of her image of <laughs> uh, the forward projection of ndenka's image is what the narrator is striving to maintain. And even as the narrator is, is, is just saying, like you said, that Adenka's son, it, he couldn't have been just an amusement for you. Y- you saw a soul which God had entrusted to you. <laughs> the narrator has no idea. This is just, <laughs> he's remembering a friend that he had as a child in trying to imagine how she would have been as an adult. And you, you don't, <laughs> you don't know. Right. I mean, it's also maybe to, to your point about how how little, frankly, the narrator knows about Nadenka. When he's talking to the woman who tells him about Nadenka's ultimate fate, uh, she keeps saying, "Hey, don't you recognize me? Don't you know who I am?" And he he says, "My memory refu- refused to oblige. I was only afraid that this might be Nadenka." So, couple things here. First of all, he wouldn't even recognize her if he saw her if she was alive. <laughs> right secondarily i think it's really interesting that he comes upon this woman living this normal life and i mean there could be you i don't know exactly he doesn't say exactly what he's afraid of i read it as you know he's afraid of coming into his fantasy coming into contact with reality maybe it's that Mm -hmm. maybe it's that he's like this woman doesn't measure up to who he thought nadenka would be you know whatever it might be but i think it's interesting that is like who is this first thought i hope it's not nadenka whoever it is <laughs> yeah. uh, i know that that kind of made me laugh too that, that's who i thought it was that's what i thought the twist was gonna be mm-hmm. but it wasn't right that would yeah that would that would be interesting though i think that would have been interesting to have 
a, a variant of the story where the narrator then has to come to terms with uh, Nadenka, who grew up to live an unexceptional life. I mean, when they're children, they're imagining very like, you know, it reads true to, you know, being young of the two of them talking about, oh, you know, we're going to travel far and wide. We're going to, I think they, they give the example of boarding a ship and they'll hug each other tight and watch the shoreline recede, you know, very like, you know, whatever, we're going to go far away from wherever we got raised. We're going to have adventures, very childlike imaginings and, and beliefs. And the then it goes the last connection for this narrator in a way that the narrator just lets nothing else be. Mm-hmm. You know what I still find interesting? Mm. The narrator. The narrator. Tell me more about what, what you find interesting. I can't reconcile the narrator and the author. Okay. I can't do it, Cameron. I can't do it. <laughs> so this is really interesting when I was fun, when I was like doing research on this. Apparently at the time, <laughs> at the time that Ocean Sky was writing, there was a Volodymyr Krestovsky writing as well. Mm. And it's it's very very common that the first names are just abbreviated to initials. So there was, at the time that she chose her pseudonym, V. Krestovsky, there was another V. Krestovsky writing. Right. But because he was a man, he was considered the real V. Krestovsky. I, I think he was also writing before her, if I am remembering correctly. So when she was published, it was published as V. Krestovsky-pseudonym. So the pseudonym was like almost kind of part of the name, mm. the, the word pseudonym itself. And so there was a, a quote that I found from this book called Finding the Middle Ground. And I have it linked in our, in our episode notes. And there is a really interesting quote from Nadezhda Kwasinskaya about pseudonyms. And she says, what is a pseudonym? No one. So then what can you say about him? This is logical. You can only write about a pseudonym after his death, and then only if he has given permission beforehand. My sister didn't give permission, and I don't either. No one has the right to ask why. We are both pseudonyms, and no one can touch us. And this was such... This was so interesting. She was saying, like, the author's dead. Like, don't, don't ask questions. Uh, way before people were saying this. And I just... I think it's interesting how she sort of uh, embodies the pseudonym when it's convenient or when it's necessary. But she also consciously distances herself from it. So there is some description of Italian architecture with the narrator's home that seems to be, from what I can tell, uh, vaguely applicable to Nadezhda's home. And there are some very right, common elements. But then there are these interesting interjections where the narrator will say, oh, well, this person didn't have any brothers or sisters, just like me. Which, of course, is, you know, not true, because mm -hmm. she did. Right. Um, and so, right, it's just, like, it's really interesting how she kind of uses it to to evade, to kind of give that distance and say, right, no, that narrator is not me. Even though I would say this this sketch story genre is kind of a personal one. Mm. And the way that it is formulated is so intensely personal the way it really like digs into the narrator's memories it makes you want to say that it is Nadezhda but it's not and she distances herself from that and so I just found that just immensely interesting as I was reading this and especially just her own commentary on the pseudonym which was I thought like very profound right even the book that I was reading says I don't know if it feels right to give this biography of her when she said she didn't want it 
I mean, I gave a biography no problem, but that's my own personal thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've, of course, made your judgment on the matter, uh, which, you know, has its domain here. Yeah. Yes. My <laughs> podcast, my rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, it almost kind of reminds me, there's one line in the story which kind of stuck out. I didn't really have anything to say about it. And it's, and it's only kind of tangentially right, it's talking about what you're talking about in regards to who is, who is the pseudonym, who is the author of pseudonym. You know, are they dead? Uh, when talking about the town, the unnamed narrator says, The town had no chronicler. In more recent days, it had no historian. But even towns have their own destiny. I think that's uh, I don't, mm-hmm. not, obviously not in any way meant to be related, but kind of I, I, that's a line that I think about a lot. I like that, the, even without conscious uh, attempt to categorize history um, mm-hmm. and make it make sense into a story. Oh, don't talk about theories of history. This whole is going to jump out and beat you with a frying pan. <laughs> um, that uh, even, well, you know, maybe he'd be, this conception, no historians, but destiny still exists. The history still creates itself. Yeah, so I, actually, I, it, it's not really Tolstoyan, but I don't even want to go there. It's, it's, I'm not going to get started. There is an interesting aspect to the plot, which is that the narrator mm-hmm. is not really part of the plot. Because this is all more or less a memory, the narrator is simply an observer. The narrator like really doesn't move anything forward. It is purely observation and perception. And I really am curious, maybe any some of our listeners would know the answer. But I'm just curious what else is out there from mm. this period like that. Because for me reading, it reads very, very much in a lot of ways like Elena Gouraud, who was an early avant-garde writer and artist. And she has a lot of stories and plays that have to do with just kind of <laughs> walking around the city and perceiving things. She has some sort of... <laughs> sort of like separate issues related to the city and the sort of like uh Mm. she has these interesting sort of this sort of erotic masochism that arises from the denigration that she receives as a woman in the city which is so separate i don't really want to (laughs) get get into it because this is to me a very platonic story um but just this element of I am here and I am perceiving and I am not doing anything. Right. Is very interesting. It's doesn't it doesn't have this sort of restless energy that like Anna Karenina has, for instance. Right. I mean it's literally it has no at the at the beginning of the story it, it opens up with, you know, as I was traveling to my hometown, I traveled happily, but with no great hope of joy. At my age when one's life has already taken shape and goes along its own groove, there are no expectations, <laughs> at least none which excite the heart. You know what awaits you, what you will do. You're in no rush. And goes on for another you know, five more comma splices. But <laughs> like literally, this person is barely excited to be alive. They're, yeah. they're trudging along. Well, you bring up another interesting point, which is some of the formal peculiarities of her writing, which I was, I was personally finding super interesting, which is one, oh my goodness, really, really long paragraphs, especially in the introduction. Uh, I think she took uh, the phrase run-on sentences as a challenge. I I like it though. It's sort of a you know, so as I was as I was doing some other research and I didn't want to get too much into this on the the form of the story which 
Wikipedia at least translates the the, the Russian word ochirk to sketch story, and I don't really exactly know if that's the best translation or even really how to describe what ochirk is in Russian literature because it's so broad. Um, but it is described on it is described or has been described as a sort of as a like a, a small form of epic which i thought was interesting i actually hadn't heard that previously um and there are some you could argue like epic devices in some ways in this just like third second paragraph she has sort of a a catalog that she gives uh Hoshinska gives as the narrator is traveling as you said right with no great hope of joy and then the narrator lays out tracks with little gullies full of water with rattling bridges with dikes made of brushwood and straw with spreading willow bushes along the sides hamlets on low rises where you could see black wattle fencing in new pine house frames and it goes on and on and on and on and on and it sort of reminds me of the um uh whatever iliad or odyssey whichever one has the catalog of ships <laughs> and you know one of them surely sure. uh and and this is like kind of actually like like the flash forward to the thing that we're going to read next week actually there's a lot of similarities in the authorial voice actually believe it or not and right so there's this there's this almost epic catalog except for the fact that it's like a provincial epic catalog so it's like it's not epic right it's provincial um but it does have this epic quality of the any townness of it right that this could happen anywhere anytime like you said it's sort of an eternal story that the narrator is telling and yeah it's it's, it's good yeah it's interesting. i like that phrase you use eternal story because uh we talked about a little bit about this before we started recording but this really struck me as a story which i've heard before and heard many times over not as like a dig at this you know being um uh what's the word i'm looking for um well anyway so not that it's like this is a dig at it but it's interesting the way it takes it because it's a very similar story to any number of stories for me which jumps out are like Haruhi Murakami's Norwegian Wood, which is a similar story about um, a person looking back on their own life and, and the, how they kind of came to be who they, they are, especially in a, a specific formative period in their life and around specific formative people. Um, that's another interesting one because that one, that's another book that takes entirely in flashback, literally as like the narrator is sitting on a plane waiting to take off, the entire book takes place. You kind of forget about that between the first and the first paragraph onward. Um, or also even like a Twilight Zone episode from the I don't know, 50s or 60s, 59, Walking Distance, uh, which just has this ad executive who w feels that somehow his life isn't where he wants it to be. So he returns home. And, you know, if you're familiar with the Twilight Zone, of course, things go wonky. He ends up in his own past, uh, literally in the hometown of his childhood. And he's like running around like, oh, my God, this is great. But as he tries to like, you know, interact with it more, he changes things about his past. And then, you know, it's like a TV show from the 1950s. So it's very literal and like accidentally knocking himself over. So he's got a scar on his knee 50 years uh, you know, later that he didn't have before. But, uh, the, you know, the story ends on this, this guy's father kind of giving him a, a pep talk of like, you know, I don't know who you are, but basically, you know, the longer you stay here, you know, you've already had your summer, let your, your, yourself from the past have it too by dwelling here you're gonna mess with it and very different message in that one it's like hey don't dwell in the past because as you look back and recollect on it you're gonna be you know in a way 
debasing it by changing it by by not letting it lie in a way so that one's like i would say almost like a very typically american hey keep your chin up and keep moving forward well also our kind of obsessive desire to change the past as well i'm not sure if that's culturally transcendent or not but it's definitely like <laughs> it's a thing we'd love to do yes no yeah i understand what you're saying but so that's like that specific difference is where i find it really interesting where you have like that the twilight zone is like okay keep your chin up move forward or in norwegian wood it's kind of i don't know a little more existential i won't say how the novel ends but it, it definitely doesn't have a it doesn't have a super definitive ending this one does feel like it has a more definitive ending it's it's kind of I don't know if it's like moving forward, but it's stuck in the past and the past is dead. And it's like kind of or kind of stuck in like, well, I'm glad my fantasies of the past don't actually have to be put under a microscope in a way. I mean, I can keep on moving with my normal life yeah, yeah. and I don't have to engage with I can let my childhood just I can walk away from things which might cause me to reevaluate it. Yeah, it it is. But it also to me is like the. There is this sort of realization that it's never coming back, which is what forms a sort of like nostalgic yearning of the piece, which completely permeates it. Like you said, it feels, uh, I think you, you, you mentioned before recording, you might have actually mentioned during two, that this feels like kind of a postmodern piece, which I, I agree. It feels, I mean, it's questioning a lot of narrative, especially getting into questioning narratives about their own time, right? about like, hey, farming isn't everything. I mean, farming is hard work. It's not the, in some ways, the life that some people are maybe a little wealthier might imagine of it being tranquil and easy. Um, but it, yeah, it does, it does feel like a shockingly, I mean, obviously there are things that, that literally date it, um, the writing style, form, all that kind of stuff. But in, in content, it's very interesting. Does it, it starts off a little slow, but it's a great, great read. Great read. I thought the the discussion on narrator and author was incredibly interesting. I wish there was more written about it. Maybe I'll write more about it. We'll there see. There you go. <laughs> so if you want to scoop mad on a thesis idea. Yeah, I just don't really want to read all six volumes of her original work <laughs> that were like, the one I opened was like 900 pages and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> all right. That's cool. Easy. Easy read. Easy read. Easy read. <laughs> Yeah, is there anything else you wanted to touch on? As I feel like I've kind of I've talked through a lot of what I walked away from the story with. Yeah, I feel like I've I've hit most of my main points. I was just looking back through and seeing if I forgot anything. There's eternally more to talk about, but I think I've hit the the main interests for me. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I mean, you could go in deeper into the relationship between the narrator and the town. Um, I think also obviously actually I want to mention a mention a line which I thought was just very funny. Um, even when when the narrator turns to think negatively of the people, the narrator says maintains that they were kind people, but quote in reality did these kind people deserve to be called good people? Uh, <laughs> which uh, I think yeah, about it. Think about it. I'm gonna leave you on that one for my end. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, before we totally wrap up, I got to ask, you mentioned it a little bit, but let's dive in a little more. What are we tackling next week? Next week, we are going to be reading a very short story. It's called An Out-of-Tune Piano and Accordion by Sofia Andruhovich. It's a short story that is part of the White Days. Oh, I keep calling it the White Days of Chalk. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short story that's part of the White Chalk of Days, the contemporary Ukrainian literature series anthology. 
If you want to read along with us, be sure to pick up a copy through our affiliate links on our website. Mm-hmm. And you can also look up. It's a good it, one. It's a good one. It's got also a website of its own. So pick up. You can pick a copy up through our website, uh, but also poke around on the White Chalk of Days' own website. It's uh, was a pretty interesting. I think actually you can read the whole thing for free on the website. The, yeah, I'll, I'll link the website in the show notes so you can take a look there. To help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all of the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, SlavicLitPod.com. And then before we let you go, we also want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters. Cameron is going to splice your names in after, and if you're still hearing this bit, something went wrong. (laughs) Nothing's going wrong, but in this case, leaving it in amused me more than uh, taking it out, which is often how I do my editing on this podcast. This month, we are transitioning over from Patreon to our own website, hosted on Ghost. Uh, So in the future, at this going forward, we are going to be reading uh, our supporters from our own website rather than Patreon. So if you are still subscribed to our Patreon, uh, per our message on there, you should uh, uh, undo that. And then if you would like, you can continue over to to our own website. All right, great. Well, our supporters on our own website now are Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pakrab. A lot of familiar faces on there. And hey, also, there's a free tier on there to subscribe for various things we're going to be putting out in relation to all of our episodes. Uh, some You'll be able to see some parts of our show notes, some articles we're planning to put on our website. So hey, lots of reasons to go over there. But this is just Cameron from the Editing Bay telling you a couple things you could do with your life or not. Hey, I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I am here to tell you what is in my control and what's under my control is that we're about to go back to the podcast as it was recorded. Bye. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Peret Mocha. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.